IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review the new Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary and a new album by Phoenix. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I wonder if he's going to pay $8 to keep his blue check, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? The haters and losers have said that you could not put a price tag on the Ian Cohen Twitter experience, but, you know, as it turns out, that it, it, it turns out it's 8 bucks, which is down from 20 I mean, like, I think that was the kind of bait and switch that, like, makes $8 seem reasonable, because the first thing that I heard was that it was going to cost, like, 20 bucks a month to keep your blue check. And I'm like, yeah, fuck no. I'm not like paying 20 bucks for anything. But now like eight bucks. I mean, it sounds kind of reasonable if only because I, I want to like Airbnb my account to like, you know, yeah. pay 10 bucks. You can rank proto martyr albums, you know, have a blast. So you are, you're giving Elon credit here for being a mastermind of business, setting up <laughs> an expectation that you're going to have to pay $20 Instead of, uh, and, and, then, and then he presents $8 is going to be the fee, and that's going to make people forget that it currently costs $0 to be verified. Uh, for those who don't know, <laughs> I, I feel like we need to fill in the background here, because not everyone is as Twitter poisoned as you and I are. That uh, Elon Musk, uh, the real-life Bond villain, uh, one of the richest men in the world, he uh, bought Twitter last week for $44 billion, and... He has floated out the idea of charging people to be verified, uh, which means that if you have a blue check next to your name, in the past that meant that you're supposedly a person of consequence (laughs) and that we have to make sure that we verify who you are because there might be imposters out there, people, you know, uh, imitating you. There's people out there like imitating Ian. There are. There really uh, were at one point. Are there Ian Cohen impersonators? Well, I mean, I think there was. I, I definitely think there was like an, if not an Ian Cohen parody account, but like uh, just something that like maybe more or less like re, like repackaged my reviews or something like that. So I was just, I was going to ask if this person was a chaos agent and saying things like, well, the new Wild Pink album is pretty mid. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Black Country New Road, uh, that album is trash. You know, just doing the opposite of your opinion. You can definitely find those opinions on a certain mainstream account, but neither here nor there. (laughs) So, you know, we can laugh about this. I have to say, though, that on balance, Twitter has been good for me professionally. I, I am on Twitter because of my job. I've been on the site for the past 12 years. I've made a lot of connections, done a lot of mar- uh, marketing and uh, of my work, uh, and uh, networking with other uh, people in the biz, which has been helpful to me because I live in the middle of the country. There are no music writers around me. Without the Bird account, I would not have access to the music industry in the way that I have in the last dozen years. Uh so I am appreciative of the site, and I'm, I, I feel a slight twinge of anxiety mm-hmm. about the Elon Musk era, because on one hand, if you pay to be verified, I feel like that's putting a big sign on your back that says, big fat loser <laughs> at this point. Like, you don't really want to admit that you're giving Elon Musk money to say that you are a person of like minor consequence. It just feels humiliating to do that. But on the other hand... I can't completely rule it out because maybe that's going to help me market my shit (laughs) when I need to market it. And maybe it'll be harder to do if I don't have the check mark. Have you noticed, like, have you been bleeding followers since Musk bought the site? Or is this just me? I've lost like a net. I've lost like 150 followers or something like that, uh, which hasn't happened to this degree since Trump was elected. Like, when Trump was elected in 2016, a lot of people, I think, got off of social media, and then they probably got on later. Um, So I don't know if this is people just bolting, or if it's bots, 
or what? But I'm I'm bleeding here. Yeah, Ian, I'm bleeding to death <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, I I, 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 and I swear to God, what I'm about to say is true. Is that I like once my Twitter following like went to you know like four digits where it said like two K instead of like nine hundred eighty six or whatever. I had no idea this check. I had no idea how to find out like how many followers I actually have. But I did see that like mine was like constantly shifting from like 0.7 to 0.6. And then I finally looked at looked at it. And it's like, wait a minute. What have I done to lose 150 followers in the past two days? Like I thought I'm like, damn, I'm like really putting out some hot takes that like people, if that's really moving the needle. But you're, you're probably right. It's probably bots. It's probably some sort of administrative type thing. And, you know, like, it, 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 you know, I think it's sort of a, I don't know, like a metaphor for, what I anticipate with the Elon Musk Twitter era, which is that it's going to seem like this major, uh, you know, sea change in the same way that like, I don't know. I think people right now have this like optimism. Like I hate to use the word optimism, but I think about it along the way lines that like people thought about, like, you know, when Trump got elected or when like COVID happened in the music industry that like, this is so profoundly shitty that like nothing can ever be the same again. Uh, but it's probably not going to be the extinction level event that will, you know, absolve people from having to think about whether to quit or not. It's just going to be like slightly shittier and like weirder, but like back to normal in faster than anyone could possibly anticipate. So it's, yeah, that's, you're probably right. (laughs) I mean, I, I did see someone share an article about how Rupert Murdoch in the mid two thousands bought MySpace and then MySpace was pretty much done after that. I don't know if that's because of Rupert Murdoch or because Facebook was coming down the pike and that is what put MySpace out of commission. But I think the idea was to liken Elon Musk buying Twitter to Rupert Murdoch buying MySpace. I don't know if that has the effect. The funniest thing I've seen this week is people, and these are mainly like political pundits and they're mainly on the left, who say... I'm going to keep posting here until Elon kicks me off. Yeah. Like their like their takes on you know politics are so dangerous <laughs> that Elon Musk is just he has like a red button and his fingers lingering over it and he's like don't tweet. Honestly, if you tweet. <laughs> one more take, you're gone. It's like come on. I I I wouldn't put it pa- I would not put it past him. I would not put it past him though. Who gives a shit though? Like why would he care about? It? That that just seems so insanely grandiose to me like when people presume that anyone cares about their bullshit as much as they care about themselves like we're all narcissists that's why we're on this platform we all like to hear ourselves talk we all like to be complimented when we have a mildly interesting thought that we've posted and then it instantly goes out of people's minds like we're all just obsessed with ourselves so i don't see that happening i don't i don't think that there's any take out there that's so dangerous that Elon Musk is going to press the red button and delete you. Having said that, (laughs) maybe Elon Musk is listening to this podcast right now and he's upset about one of our takes. Mm. Maybe he was upset. I don't know. What have we ripped lately that Elon Musk might like? I guess we weren't nice to the Grimes. Well, no, I mean, maybe if we weren't nice to Grimes, he would appreciate that now. Are they still together? Yeah, I, don't, so. I don't remember. They have a kid they together. They do have a kid together, but I don't remember. Ah. But, he has, a, he, but he, has like, he has like 25 kids, yeah. though. Him and Herschel Walker. He's a nut. Know? Yeah, he's insane. Um, before we get to the mailbag, I feel like we have to talk quick about uh, punk rock ethics. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. <laughs> One of my favorite topics in the world, if, if, if there's nothing I like talking about more than punk rock ethics, um, there was a story this week, was it this week or last week? I think this, I think this has been rolling out this month, where there's a Taco Bell commercial mm-hmm. with a turnstile song. Holiday, yes. Yes. And... I'll ask you this because you keep closer tabs on it than I do. You are the punk rock ethics <laughs> correspondent for IndyCast. Are there are there like jokers out there who are upset about this? Are there people complaining about this? Or is this something where it turns into a topic because people invent someone who is mad about this? Uh, I think with Turnstile, like 
they've been, you know, kind of dabbling in sounds like 311 and Rage Against the Machine for so long that, like, nobody has any illusions that they're supposed to be, like, minor threat or whatever. Like, I think that it's just another sort of situation, like you were saying, where people invent the turn... Like, look, turnstile haters do exist, but they're so minimal. It's sort of like, you know, people getting mad about, like, Billie Eilish wearing a certain type of dress. It's more, it's more like... <laughs> Hey, cool. Like Turnstile is the only rock band that exists right now, which hell, good for them. Um, but you know, like, get, I, I th- and I also think the fact that it's like Taco Bell, like you know, people people love Taco Bell. Taco Bell's had its hands; they they've had they've had their hands in the music scene for a while. But you know, yeah. what I'm wondering is you know the fact that like Turnstile is doing a Taco Bell ad now and you know opening for Blink 182 and playing like being the token rock band on like festivals that don't really deal with rock. I'm like wondering like can Turnstile actually get like even bigger than they currently are? Is like Brendan Yates gonna be like this Kevin Parker type dude that like rappers bring on their song to like give some veneer of like indie cred i'm just wondering if they've actually reached their ceiling or if there's you know more to be explored in the turnstile extended universe i think they could get bigger i i guess i don't know like what the appropriate level of big is before we call them big is it when they headline arenas is that is that the you know or when they have a number one album or something um Getting back to the Taco Bell issue, I do think the fact that it's Taco Bell, not just because Taco Bell has funded other artists yes. uh, in the past. You know, Taco Bell socialism <laughs> is a real thing. Taco Bell handing out money to bands. This might be the solution <laughs> to the problem we've talked about on the show about bands on the road uh, finding it difficult to tour. Mm-hmm. Um, not only will Taco Bell feed you on the road, uh, with their delicious food from drive-throughs, but maybe Taco Bell is the answer in terms of giving gobs of cash to bands to offset the tremendous cost of uh, being on the road. I th- I think that's a good thing. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, even if you set aside the 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 history of Taco Bell socialism <laughs> in Rock, which is music, a very real thing, I think we have to be very clear. It is a real thing. Feed the Beat has been it's happening a- since 2006. Bands getting like five hundred, they get like five hundred bucks or something along those yeah. lines. It's very real. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious here with the term Taco Bell socialism, but that's what it is. And you don't see a lot of other people stepping up to hand bands cash <laughs> in this day and age. Um, but even if you set all that aside, I mean, it's not like Turnstile's doing commercials for like Cartier watches or something. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the audience that likes Turnstile. And I'll include myself in this. Also likes Taco Bell. Yeah. I mean, let's not tur- let's not turn our noses up at Taco <laughs> Bell. If you go to Turnstile, see them live, and you're in the pit. What's better on the drive home than stopping <laughs> at the drive-through and you know getting some Taco Bell, getting some gorditas? Yeah. Eat, uh, eat, eat the Taco Bell after the Turnstile show. I think we have to be, oh, be yeah, very yeah. clear that like this is a, not on the way. Yeah, this is a band. This is a band with a history of someone taking an actual shit in the mosh pit. So <laughs> yeah, that which which you know by the way the, you want to talk about living moss. That's <laughs> that's how you live moss is uh, taking a shit in the uh, in the mosh pit. Uh, we should probably go to mailbag after that. Nah, I, uh, I'm, I'm willing to discuss taking a sh- if we're really going to talk about punk rock ethics. It's like whether you know taking a shit in the turnstile mosh pit is okay or not. So. Well, we should maybe table that right. for later this That's month. That's a whole It's going to get a little, yeah, it's going to get a little thin here, heading toward the holidays. So we may have to have like the punk rock ethicist slash shitting in the mosh pit episode. Let's just earmark that for a standalone episode. By the way, I realized recently that we never did the second law anniversary episode <sighs> that we've promised for a year. We might have to do that this we've month. Let our people down. It's, yeah, we might have to at least bring that up at some point. I, I although no one complained about <laughs> it, <laughs> I had to like remember this myself. So I don't. There's probably no demand for it, but at, I still feel as a professional podcaster the duty to live up to uh, express promises on the show. So maybe we'll get to that later this month. Uh, let's get to our mailbag here. Thank you all for writing in. Always great to hear from our listeners. Please hit us up at indiecastmailbag at gmail dot com. We might have to do an all mailbag episode too coming up. I'm loving that. So we 
Oh wait, that's a yeah. that's a McDonald's phrase, not Taco Bell. Although McDonald's, if it. you do want to sponsor IndieCast, I've been eating your McFlurries for years and years and years, despite the fact that your machines never fucking work. So, you know what I had for the first time in years the other What's day? That? A Big Mac. Fucking quality. It was it was pretty yeah. good. I liked it. I, I'm usually a quarter pound to a cheese guy, at uh, or maybe a fillet of fish <laughs> if I feel like eating healthy at McDonald's. <laughs> Uh, anyway, you want to read our letter? Yeah, let, we'll put a pause on fast food cast. Uh, we're diversifying our bonds here in the uh, 2022. Uh, <laughs> hey, Stephen and Ian. Me and my wife just returned from the second weekend of w- the When We Were Young Fest in Las Vegas. We were both in middle and high school during the early 2000s, and so we're square in the demographic for this. We've been to other big festivals before, and we both agreed that WWWY was probably the most fun festival we've attended, both for us and it also seemed like for the bands involved. It was a perfect mix of bands with deep catalogs, like Ian's favorite Jimmy World, playing shorter sets that left us wanting more, and pure nostalgia acts playing five to seven song sets that were just enough to not overstay their welcome. So my question for you guys is, do you think festivals like When We Were Young that are built around a certain theme might be the path that more big festivals take going forward? Could a festival like Bonnaroo get back to its jam roots? Could there be a version of WWWY that combines all the Meet Me in the Bathroom era bands with newer acts that draw from that sound? Seems like those lineups would be a lot more fun than the virtually identical lineups most big festivals have become in the last few years. Thanks for all you do. Kyler, KCMO. So that sounds pretty awesome. I wasn't aware that they had bands doing just like five song sets. Like, if you're a band and you only have a couple hits, you're just going to go out and play your hits and then you're done. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I didn't know that was the case for from when we were young. But, uh, you know, I'm sure if I look back at, like, you know, the bottom half of the festival poster where it's like, oh, I vaguely remember that from MySpace. It's like, yeah, you'll get paid a shitload of money you play five songs you're done you can explore las vegas for the rest of the week and i can't see how a band it's funny because like when we talk about punk rock ethics i feel like bands who are playing like when we were young are so much more inclined to do that than like an indie rock band from like 2008 who might get put on a similar nostalgia package they might think they're above yeah Yeah, it it reminds me of when I worked at a daily newspaper many years ago and I would interview musicians from the 80s. I played in bands like Warrant and Poison and they were always great to interview because they had a real sense of who they were and they had no delusions about their career and they were grateful to be on the road and they're like, yeah, you know, we're going to play our hits. We want to make people happy. And there is that thing in indie rock where you're like a little too cool to do that, even if you are in middle <laughs> age and past your moment a little bit. Um, you have more experience with Coachella than I do, so and I have no firsthand experience with Coachella. But my impression of those big festivals is that music isn't necessarily like the main attraction. Not that it's irrelevant, but you know, you see a lot of times. Tickets go on sale at those festivals before a full lineup is even announced. Like you might know the headliners, but usually you don't know the majority of the acts that are going to be on the bill. And those festivals sell out anyway because people go as a show, as a social experiment experience. Like they're going with their friends. It's going to be a fun place to hang out. They're going to see music, but the music's going to be in the background. And it seems like, especially at a Coach- at Coachella. You know, they have all these amenities, and you can enjoy the amenities as much as the music. Maybe if there's like a gap in the day where you don't like any of the bands, you can go go to the spa or something, <laughs> or eat the food, and it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so I don't see those festivals changing. I do see more festivals like when we were young being a thing, because you have this generation of millennials now, you know, just a huge number of people, just like the boomers, you know, like there were huge numbers of boomers. There's now huge numbers of millennials who are approaching 40, if not in their 40s already. So there's going to be this big nostalgia market. I could see a meet me in the bathroom style tour. Mm. Are we too early yet for like a blog rock tour? <laughs> like we're like if someone just threw a ton of money at Vampire Weekend, who like they don't need to play a festival like this. But let's say someone just threw like a ton of money at them. So they're going to be the headliner 
And then like the lower half of the bill is like clap your hands, say yeah, black kids, uh, Cold War kids, <laughs> all those blog rock bands. I could see a tour like that happening. I wonder if there will be uh, what I could see a festival like that happening, but I wonder if there'll be a model like the old Lollapalooza where you have festivals that also tour, you know? So you have when we were young, but that's going to be a tour that plays however many major cities. In other words, the warp could, tour, like that's what you're, you're basically describing. Yeah. Warp tour. tour or Ozfest. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, is, but there's not really a tour like that currently running, right? Because no. I, I, Warp, Warp Tour isn't happening anymore. No, thank God. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Warp Tour to come back. Uh, like once, you know, all the terrible, terrible shit that came to define it towards the end uh, is forgotten. But, you know, I think that the reason, you, and you brought, you know, you kind of alluded to this point with when we were young, is that similar to Coachella, it's like a destination um, you know, when it got canceled the first day uh, because of high winds, people were like, well, we're still in Las Vegas. That's pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, that wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite the same experience if it was in, you know, I'm not like laying it on thick for Wisconsin, like Sheboygan or whatever, whatever, whatever city that, you know, Warped Tour would come through uh, when it was. In, Good ref. Yeah, absolutely. So Warped Tour would just play Milwaukee or Madison. Okay, gotcha. Maybe Green Bay, but <laughs> mainly the big cities in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. perhaps. But um, no, nah, even Oshkosh, like too small. All right. Yeah, Warp Tour's got a you know. Like, I mean, look, I when it came to San Diego, still sold out. I mean, but then again, San Diego is an extremely Warp Tour type of city. But wasn't there going to be a bit? I mean, there will be a tour. I'm sure at some point it'll be a touring festival. Maybe it's not called Warp Tour, but it's like Vans you know, something to her. And it's going to be like simple plan, <laughs> some 41, uh, you know, all of those like pop punk bands from the early 2000s. Well, this is, That's going to be a tour. I'm sure within the next few well, years. Well, I mean that you, you're basically describing the lineup from when we were young, 2023, which has been announced. And, uh, you know, I do think that festivals of this nature, which have like kind of a theme and a destination are more of the future, as opposed to like, you know, the 2014-15 model where you book Mac DeMarco, Future Islands, Run the Jewels, and Chance the Rapper, and, like, fill out the rest. Because there's already, like, kind of a quasi-East uh, Coast, when we were young, announced called the Adjacent Festival, and it's in Atlantic City. So, I mean, I think people can mobilize dollars for that. Um, as far as, like, can we do a blog rock weekend, like you were describing with, like, Vampire Weekend holding down the headliner and, like you know, Cold War kids and black kids. That already sort of happened with uh, Just Like Heaven in 2019. Oh. But, like, I think that there's a very, very, very salient point to bring up with regards to the viability of a festival like that. I was told that with the original Just Like Heaven, and there's this was also somewhat true of when we were young. Like, when we, when we were young... That festival was announced with bands before any of the bands actually signed on. And like through some industry mechanics, bands figured out, oh, yeah, we should do this. I think with Just Like Heaven, some of the bands weren't aware of like who else was on the lineup and like totally wouldn't have played if they had known it was like primarily a 2009 Pitchfork nostalgia thing. Uh, you know, I don't think Vampire Weekend would play a festival like that. Uh, probably not. Probably not them, but I think. You know, again, we're talking about the difficulties of touring. I haven't seen any reporting on this, but I feel like these festivals becoming tours is going to become a thing again because it just seems like there's so many bands on the road now that can't really draw an audience on their own. Mm -hmm. But if they're packaged with like 10 other bands, or maybe it's a thing like where you have three or four headliners and then a revolving cast of supporting acts, like as you hit different parts of the country. But that just seems like smart business at this point. Because I know for me, and I suspect this is true of most people, because there's so many shows on the road right now, you're forced to be a little more selective and you are more likely to go to the show that feels like an event. Yeah. Like I'm going to see Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's Addiction the <laughs> night that this podcast posts. I don't know if I would see those bands by themselves, but the fact that they're together, I think entices me more to go see yeah. that. 
Uh, it, I mean, it's like a buyer's market right now. I mean, there's just so much to go to that if it's a band that you like, but you feel like, oh, they'll be back again next year, there's just less compelling you to do that. But if there's like four or five bands that you want to see and you know that they're going to be playing meat-only sets... <laughs> That's a pretty enticing thing, and I could see that becoming more of a trend. Yeah, I mean, this weekend I'm seeing the return of Dia de los Deftones in San Diego, which has Turnstile uh, and uh, Deftones, and also I think like you know, like they always do, they have like Fantagram and like Freddie Gibbs, and you know, just some other bands that are somewhat in that ilk. Um, but yeah, I mean, this like I don't know if it's drawing people from like you know far outside the city of San Diego, but. Hell yeah, I'm gonna go see. I'm gonna see like Deftones and Turnstile. And then again, I'd also see them, you know, individually as well. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm curious to see how this unfolds, but I think there's gonna be something like that. I, I'm. I have not seen any reporting on that. I could. I could be completely wrong. Maybe the logistics of doing that kind of tour is just too much at this point, but. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of those big package tours if, coming back and becoming a thing. If there's a dollar to be made, believe me that like Golden Voice <laughs> and Live Nation are going to figure out a way to extract it from our you know cold hands. Let's get into the meat of our episode this week. As I said at the top, we're going to be talking about the new Phoenix album, which is called Alpha Zula. We'll be getting to that later in this episode. For now, we're going to be talking about a new documentary that is being released in New York and L.A. today. There's going to be a one-night event in cinemas nationwide on Tuesday, November 8th, where you can see the Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary. And uh, Ian and I both saw a screener of this, so we are prepared to talk about it in this episode. But first, a little background. Of course, this film is based on the book from 2017 by Lizzie Goodman. I think it's fair to say that this is the most celebrated rock book of the last five years. Uh Probably of the last decade. Yeah, that, not even the last five years. I can't remember the last one that like really like was entertaining. Like that that kind of you can imagine someone outside like the circle of like music writers reading this. Yeah, it's. I mean, in terms of like indie alternative rock, it's the most significant book I think since the Michael Azarad book. Our band could. Be I think alive. it's the most significant book you know in this world since uh, this isn't happening. Or long road. <laughs> I mean, come come on, well, how could you drop the ball on this one? <laughs> well, uh, well, this isn't happening. Came out after uh, because Lizzie Goodman very generously blurbed that book. So thank you, Lizzie, if you're listening. Um, you know, look, I I appreciate you saying that, but you know, we have to you know report the truth here. I think me in the bathroom. Very celebrated book, so celebrated that it's now a documentary directed by Dylan Southern and Will Lovelace, who you may know from their previous documentary or one of their previous documentaries, Shut Up and Play the Hits, which uh, I guess in a way you could call Meet Me in the Bathroom the prequel to that film. Um, I'm curious for your thoughts on this film. As you said, you read the book, I read the book. The film, as you would expect, is a more streamlined version of the book. I think in in some positive ways, like if I were to criticize the book, like for me, it opens with a lot of information that feels superfluous about just the bar scene in (laughs) New York. Like the first 60 pages I ended up skipping through, just because I didn't really want to hear about... Jonathan Fire Eater playing. (laughs) Well, not even Jonathan Fire Eater, but like, you know, second and third tier... Scenesters doing blow at the star bar. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm not that interested in that. Like, get me to Julian Casablancas and Karen O and Carlos D and all those people. Um, so you don't really get a whole lot of that in the movie. Uh, but of course, it's this film is like an hour and 45 minutes, so there's a lot that also gets left out that people might be missing. Um, what did you think about this movie overall? I, I have to say that I found the movie very entertaining. I think if you have any interest in this period. You're going to enjoy the film. Uh, there are flaws to the movie, but the footage that you see of these bands in their sort of embryonic state is is pretty great. Um, and I've never seen any of this footage really before. So it, I think just on an entertainment level, the film delivers. 
What did you think? I mean, did you enjoy the movie? Well, I, I'll just tell you right now that I would rather read like 500 pages about like Northern Soul Night at the Star Bar than hear like another fucking minute of Moldy Peach's music. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, right off the bat, yeah. right off the bat, they lead with a like someone reading a fucking Walt Whitman poem about Manhattan over like, you know, montage of the city and all of its dynamicism. And then you meet the Moldy yeah. Peaches, which anti folk, I think. I think is like maybe like quite possibly like the single worst movement, at least from my taste. Like I think if you were to like create, if you were to externalize like everything I dislike about music, like whether it's just like fake twee, like New York City boosterism, it it's there. That being said, I'm sure they're nice. They're yeah, nice I mean, people. They're, yeah, there's a lot of moldy peaches in this movie at the beginning, and it is a thing where if you go into this movie cold. Mm-hmm. And you've just been told, oh yeah, there were all these cool bands in New York City in the early 2000s. And then you see the Moldy Peaches. You might be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, what? I thought these were cool people. And now we're just, this is like the most irritating band uh, in the world. But yeah, they do eventually move on from the Walt Whitman and, and Moldy Peaches. Uh, you part could of say film. New York City is the biggest character of this um but yeah <laughs> the city that never sleeps yeah, the city that never sleeps this is where things the biggest apple biggest ha- they call it the huge they call it the, the 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 huge orange i think right is that what they call new york or the windy apple something like that um yeah I, so you know like I, I i'm trying to imagine like for whom this movie exists like aside if you've if you've read the book you kind of know the stories about like you know how the strokes meet up and like, you know, their privileged background and they become insanely famous in, you know, England before they even release songs in America. So that part's all pretty well established. Um, and I think that like, you've nailed it where this exists, this film exists solely like exclusively for the, like the shot. It's very shocking uh, given like when this stuff was filmed, that they have this much footage of, say, Paul Banks playing an acoustic song at an open night mic, and it, and it kind of sounds like an Interpol song, or like you see the Strokes looking like they're twenty, or Karen O just like kind of hanging out in t-shirts and jeans, and uh, I, I mean this stuff is just like really fascinating to see because like I think the last thing we need is you know, more New York City boosterism uh, of that era. I mean, I think that's kind of the most obnoxious part of the book, you know, uh, aside from, like, towards the end where they talk about, like, how bands like Vampire Weekend and MGMT, they don't party enough. Um, Fortunately, the documentary doesn't, uh, you know, harp on that very much. But, yeah, I mean, I think that this this movie, like, could, it's, it's, Similar to a lot of documentaries I see about music on Netflix and Hulu and so forth, where it either needed to be like an hour or like five hours, you know? Yeah. Uh, Because as it is, it just kind of condenses things to, you know, LCD sound system, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, The bands that are super popular to begin with. Uh, I they say that like TV on the radio and liars like they're seen as like major players in this film, and you get maybe a combined minute of footage of them talking, and it's like fuck. I, yeah, there's more about the there's more about the rapture, San Diego, San Diego, than, San Diego icons. Yeah, like you you see more of the rapture than TV on the radio, which is sort of an odd thing, but that might have just been a matter of having the yeah, footage I of think the that's the, and not a I think that's the big part of it it's like uh, who do we have footage of like I think if like they yeah. had an inordinately large amount of like less savvy fave or like black dice footage they would have played a much bigger role I mean that's the challenge of a of a documentary I mean it is hard uh it's trickier than just writing something because you can write anything you want but when you are making a film you are limited by certain things and by a time frame, and um, it does make you change your storytelling because of that. You know, I'm going to echo what you said about this film either feeling too... I don't think it feels too long. It definitely doesn't feel too long for me. So at, at, at times, I, I was like, I wish this were on Netflix and it was four or five hours long. But at the same time, and this I'm going to be contradicting myself, <laughs> is... And I felt this way about the book, too, that a lot of these bands don't have super compelling 
stories. Like they're like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs are a great band, and Interpol. You know, I, I enjoy them, <laughs> but I don't know if they have the type of stories that justify a book or a documentary or or both things. Like in the movie, it makes a big deal at one point about Karen O falling off. Uh, a stage in Australia and that representing her reaching a breaking point on the road. And I'm sure that was traumatic and it was, uh, you know, and I don't know if she was hurt from that or anything, but you know, for a movie, it feels like a little like, okay, are we contriving drama here? You know, I mean, a worse instance of that is they make a big deal about antics, the second Interpol record leaking on the internet <laughs> And that representing sort of like a failure of their career arc. And it's just like, didn't every album yeah. leak in, in 2004? I, it just seems like, again, it's another instance of them making up drama because they, they need to hit certain story beats for this film. I don't know if you feel this way because you, you don't like the Strokes as much as I do. Like, I'm a huge Strokes fan. You're probably more... Uh, like I, you probably like the first two records and not as much the rest. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that's exactly like it. <laughs> okay, so I, I love the Strokes. I feel like the book. If you had taken the Strokes out of that book, it would have fallen apart. It would not have justified the length that it was. Whereas you could do a book just on the Strokes, and it would be very interesting. I felt the same way about thing about this movie. Like I hope this movie doesn't preclude a Strokes documentary because. I was watching this and I was like, well, one thing, I think this movie makes Julian Casablancas more sympathetic than he ever has been. Absolutely. You really do you really do get the sense that even though he's this like really handsome, charismatic guy, he seems profoundly uncomfortable in his own skin and very awkward and was probably ill-suited for being famous even though he had all the tools to be famous. That's the impression I get watching the film. Um I wanted more of that. I want. I wanted more about Albert Hammond and Ryan Adams. Oh yeah, Ryan Adams. By the way, one of the great villains in rock documentary history already. Like he is totally hateable in this movie. Uh, one of the MVPs of this film, just because he's so much of a, of a villainous figure. Whereas Carlos D, maybe the hero of the movie for me, because uh, he's so ridiculous. Such a great musician. I love seeing Carlos D. And I really like the the Karen O parts in the film. I think she's clearly the most uh, likable person in the movie. She seems very down to earth. And you also feel for her because she had to deal with a lot of bullshit sexism uh, in that scene. Uh, but other than that, I was like, I just want the strokes <laughs> in this movie. And I kind of just want a strokes documentary. Am I wrong on that? I mean... I, again, I hope that this doesn't preclude like the full-on Strokes movie at some point. Yeah, I, you know, it, if you do take out the Strokes, like at least just like the story of the Strokes from the book, the book does fall apart. But then again, you have to think about the fact that like the Strokes were the band that kind of made everything after happen. You know, it's like they were the big bang of this New York scene, even though if it was happening around them, uh, you know, it, like. The Rapture says in the movie, it's like, yeah, we were the disco strokes. Um, and it just, even if like the strokes never became like, you know, they never sold many, as many records as like the killers, let's say. Uh, as far as like the industry goes, it really shifted things in a manner that it's like on a much, much smaller level, like supposedly how Nirvana and grunge killed hair metal. Like they do allude to this in the beginning where they set up the strokes against like, uh, footage of the MTV Video Awards were like Blink-182, The Offspring, and Limp Bizkit are winning awards. But yeah, I, I I think that one of the flaws perhaps of this documentary trying to be more than just, hey, let's just show footage of like the Strokes playing this tiny-ass club in New York is that um, none of these bands had particularly difficult arcs towards fame. Like, you know, you see Interpol kind of struggling to make their way and uh, but, you know, they had a pretty swift, uh, you know, swift uptake to becoming signed by Matador and selling out shows. Same with Yeah, Yeah, Yes. Um, and none of these bands had really dramatic falls either. Like, I think the Strokes are as popular as Julian Casablancas always wanted them to be in that they can make the weirdest music they want and still like headline festivals like Interpol is still chugging along. 
the AAAs, you know, they can release music whenever they want. Um, you know, none of these bands had really dramatic rises or falls. So there is kind of this invented, contrived, invented, contrived narrative to like make you feel for them. Uh, I do think the Interpol antics leaking online thing is ridiculous, largely because like they put AOL on like America online footage along with that and dial up modems. Like, why are you using, like, 1998-style, like, internet stuff to talk about Napster? That's a little well, beside yeah, the point, I, but... Yeah, again, I don't know. I can forgive that just because... <laughs> how do you signify the internet in 2004? That might have been a difficult thing to do. I'm, I'm willing to forgive yeah. that. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit about the Strokes. I do think that their internal strife and how they imploded... Yeah, they've continued along, but I think everyone would probably agree that they didn't quite end up where people thought they would, especially in the two thousands. I think that story is really interesting and I would have loved to see more about that. Again, maybe I'm alone in this, but like I would have wanted a deep dive into the making of room on fire (laughs) and uh, first impressions of the earth and even like angles. Cause angles seems like that was Julian Casablanca is checking out Mm -hmm. and like the rest of the band was writing and it just seemed like it was a total mess. He looks um, so miserable during the making of Angles. <laughs> or no, sorry, not the yeah. making. The, when, the footage they show of him, like I, I think it's like the uh, what 1250, 1251 video, whatever that's yeah. called. He looks so, – I've like never seen so, – like this is like Radiohead meeting people is easy type misery. Yeah, he – I don't know. Casablancas is interesting to me. And maybe the fact that he doesn't talk himself in the movie just makes him mm-hmm. more – fascinating because he's kind of an enigma i want to run something by you here because you know i was talking with a friend yesterday about this movie and she was saying that in her mind lcd sound system doesn't belong in the context of the strokes Mm -hmm. yeah 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 as an interpol uh which i think i agree with they make sense geographically Mm -hmm. you know because they were a new york band and they were I guess like the next big indie thing that happened after that initial wave of bands. But I wonder like with this story, if it makes more sense to talk about the killers because the killers, they don't make sense geographically, but they were the band. If we want to call them the stone temple pilots (laughs) to the strokes, Pearl jam, that's what they were. Only they ended up being bigger Mm -hmm. Than the Strokes. In a way, they were like the Strokes who had their shit together. <laughs> and like like last night isn't nearly as big as Mr. Brightside ended up no. being. And I think and I think that is the element that's missing. I think they talk about the killers a bit in the book. They're not at all in the movie. And I feel like that is like the end of the story in a way. Because they're the ones who took that New York thing and they turned it into pop music. You know, mm-hmm. and I just feel like not having them in here. Yeah, you can't make it a New York story, but does this have to be as much of a New York story as it is? Can it just be more of like a rock story? Because then you could also talk about the White Stripes. Yes. The White Stripes are the other big missing piece here. And they are more in the book. Mm-hmm. They're not at all in the they film. They mentioned them once. It's like this Strokes, White Stripes double like co-headliner at music city but like that's all you see because they're another because like the white stripes ended up being bigger than the strokes and jack white ends up being uh, i think that they're close maybe not now maybe not now but in the 2000s oh yeah absolutely but by the end of the 2000s they were now like the strokes have that thing where they're like the millennial rolling stones (laughs) i mean they just have that like we're like we're the swaggering grizzled rock band that is has like a totemistic quality mm-hmm. to them. Um, and Jack White maybe doesn't have the same cachet as he did back then. But, you know, in that decade anyway, the White Stripes, I think, ended up being bigger. And they were more acclaimed, too, in the moment. Does that make sense to you? I Absolutely. feel like those bands need to be in here. And you can't put them in because it's so New York-centric. But maybe it doesn't need to be, or maybe it shouldn't be so New York-centric. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the difficulty of this film, where it's they it's you know it's bookended by that Walt Whitman poem, so it's definitely a New York story. Um, but also, I think where the book "Meet Me in the Bathroom" itself gets super interesting is when it 
gets, uh, you know, the killers are in there and Kings of Leon are in there right. as well. Because Kings of That's Leon true. play, like, they are like, oh, the Southern Strokes. Like, this is yeah. where we get into, like, you know, the Candlebox, like, slash uh, Stone Temple Pilots of it all. And, like, Kings of Leon, really interesting story as well. Um, more, like, more so than the Strokes. I mean, if you look at their background and such. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, the I think, I don't know, maybe, like, the best and the saddest part of this movie is that easily the most interesting part is when Ryan Adams comes in like, wow, what an asshole. Oh yeah. He's <laughs> awful. And it's like, it's like rock and roll era Ryan Adams. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, I don't know if I should say peak sleaze with Ryan Adams because it's probably all peak sleaze with Ryan Adams, no matter what era you're talking about. But um, yeah, he's such a great villain and how he's basically blamed for the strokes falling apart. You know, because he's the one that allegedly gave Al- Albert Hammond drugs and got him addicted. You also have Courtney Love. Yes. <laughs> floating around here, too. I remember you know, that I- MTV. T- like, I love the MTV2 footage of the $2 bill show and the 24, like, the 24 hours, like, hanging out where, like, two of the guys in the strokes are just, like, completely fucking booted on live TV. <laughs> Yeah, and they're just like passing out, yeah. you know, in a bed, like on stage, and while Courtney Love is like flashing her breasts at people in the street, just super toxic uh, <laughs> situation. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel like the ending of this movie, it shouldn't be LCD sound system. It should be the Killers doing Sam's Town and Kings of Leon doing Sex on Fire. Like that should be the end because it should be like. This is where it started, and this is where it ended up, you know, because I think that to me is more of like it's like a larger story about that kind of rock music in in the two thousands. Um, I mean, you could also talk about the fact, and maybe this diminishes the movie, so you don't want to do it, but you could talk about the fact that like Lincoln Park at in this era was like 10 times more popular (laughs) than The Strokes. And the reason why is because Linkin Park appealed to little kids. Yeah. That is always the secret to, I think, any kind of pop music, but certainly rock bands. If If you don't appeal to little kids, your audience is limited. You know, and I think the New York bands, it was a strictly 21 and over audience. Like, people that went to bars. Yeah. Like The Strokes and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Whereas Hybrid Theory... That owned middle school, you know, <laughs> and that's why they sold how many records? Like 10, Ten million. million. Like it, that, that's like a real diamond selling album. Yeah. In an era of like downloading. So like, just think that there were probably, you know, twice as many people listening to that or three times as many people, you know, who had that record than, than bought it. Who is going to make the meet me in the bathroom of uh, the Lincoln Park sort of era? But then again, like you can't because I think the, uh, you know, it's been very well established that like Lincoln Park were just like complete fucking nerds and like they would spend yeah. hours upon hours in the studio like trying to get the chorus of faint right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, very clean cut band. Yeah, Lincoln Park. Um, so anyway, I I think we both recommend this movie. Yeah, watch it. Sh- yeah, it, it, it's a fun watch. It's going to be on Showtime by the end of the month, and. Uh, I don't know if it'll be available to rent too, but uh, I don't know. Get a free trial of Showtime yeah. if you don't uh, have Showtime. Uh, but yeah, definitely check it out. I think it's an entertaining movie. I I, I would watch it again. It's very watchable. Yeah. James Murphy with long hair. I mean, like that. It's worth it for that alone. You get to see James Murphy as like a post-hardcore guitarist. Shit yeah, on my it, dreams. Yeah, you get to hear James Murphy talking about how I didn't even mean to start a band. I didn't think I was going to start a band at all. And then I started a band and blah, blah, blah. You Tim Goldsworthy again. thought I should. Tim Goldsworthy, like one of the biggest assholes in Meet Me in the Bathroom. And like just the unlimited amount of time he gets in this movie. It's like, you shouldn't release Losing My Edge. You're going to embarrass yourself. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was an instance where I was like, okay, I feel, I feel good for James Murphy here. Yeah. Good for you that you put that out. Um, let's get to our next topic. And that topic is Alpha Zulu, the new album by Phoenix, the French Strokes, mm. if you will, uh, to link it to our previous subject. 
this is their first album in seven. Oh, I'm sorry. It's their, it's their seventh album and it's their first album in five years. Um, I did a story on Phoenix this week. I interviewed Thomas and Laurent. Laurent or Laurent? I think it's Laurent. Yeah. You know better than me, man. You actually talked to them. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't say their names. Oh. <laughs> and they had very thick accents, so I didn't understand everything that they said. Um, I did a review your own albums piece with them this week, and there were two things that I learned. One was that Phoenix albums are really difficult to make, apparently. Like, they used the word pain several times when describing making various albums in their catalog, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily think because it's such breezy, easy to listen to music, although... At the same time, I can see them being perfectionists. I mean, their 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 records are pretty sonically perfect, for better or worse. Um, the second thing I learned from this interview is that uh, Phoenix is a really good band, really nice guys, very handsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they seem like they'd be a great hang. But unlike the bands that we just talked about, not especially interesting <laughs> from like a documentary perspective. Um, like, I think you could argue, like, I wouldn't argue this, but you could argue that Phoenix has a better catalog than The Strokes. Mm. But I wouldn't want to see a documentary about Phoenix. You know, even if Sofia Coppola made it? <laughs> no, not even if Sofia made it. Uh, again, they're they're a very nice band. They seem very stable. They've been friends since they were kids. Um, they work hard. They make good records. But, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of dramatic things happening with this band. Um this record, this is another thing that was interesting about the interviews, is that the guys, they described this new record, Alpha Zulu, as being all over the map. That they were putting songs together that didn't really fit. They feel like it's really eclectic. And I can't imagine anyone outside of the band listening to this record and <laughs> taking that away from it. <laughs> I'm curious for your take on this. I like this record overall, I think. But the thing about it is that it does feel like the guys in Phoenix were frozen in ember mm. sometime around 2009. And like they haven't aged, like they all look the same. Like Thomas <laughs> Mars, the lead singer, looks exactly the same. They sound pretty much the same. I don't think they're doing it deliberately. I think this is just who they are. That song tonight that they did with Ezra Koenig. Very good single. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a song that could have been the third single on Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix after 1901 and Listomania. I could mm-hmm. easily see, you know, instead of Ezra Koenig 2022, Ezra Koenig in, tw- in 2009, as he's making Contra, stops by and makes this song with Phoenix. I wouldn't be surprised or I would be shocked if someone told me that this was in a vault for 13 years. What's your take on this band? Again, they're a good band. They're a nice band. This is a nice record. I have trouble saying anything else beyond that. I mean, you say they brought up the word pain a lot. Maybe it's like pain, you know, which is the French word for bread. Maybe they were just like talking <laughs> about baguettes or some shit. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned like that they were kind of seen as the French strokes or the soft rock strokes. It's funny, like as a band that's like kind of frozen in amber um they've actually evolved a lot in the 2000s like the first time i had heard them was uh if i ever feel better on fucking erlin oye's dj kicks like that's a real remember some guys from 2004 moment uh they were kind of this like smooth like french touch kind of quasi like post daft punk pop band and then they kind of switched up their sound to do uh You know, uh, it's never been like that. The 2006 album, which I think is still their only like end to end great album. And then Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, the one they blew up on. And I think one of the most, um, you know, my memory of Phoenix is really, it really brings me back to 2013 Coachella. Like if we could bring it back, not only to Meet Me in the Bathroom, but Coachella. They actually headlined Coachella in 2013 when Bankrupt uh, had just come out. The headliners of that year were them, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, two years removed from like I'm With You, which is like their, while they acknowledge their worst album of the 21st century, 
And also, the Friday night headliner was Stone Roses, and they flopped so hard they switched out with Blur, who flopped slightly less. But you know, that I was this. yeah, that was a kind. I, of, I wrote a column about this for Grantland in 2013. Oh Maybe, shit! Let's remember some columns here. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. Grantland. And, and yeah, you're totally right. Again, the moment even it felt like. Oh, we're making Phoenix a festival headliner now? Like, yeah. is, is it just because it's like their turn, or there's like nobody else on an album cycle that's also an indie rock band? Mm. Yeah. That's what I, it felt like in the moment. Yeah. And it did seem like a breaking point for Coachella keeping that indie rock brand. It's like, wh- what are we doing here if we're making Phoenix a headliner? This doesn't seem like it's good for us in the long run. And they, you know, it took them another year or so to like really switch things up. But, you know, like that was kind of to me a signal of like Phoenix being kind of a greatest hits type band, like uh, similar to the Strokes. Now, like I mean, they're nowhere near as big as the Strokes. I've never seen a Phoenix T-shirt. I've seen a ton of Strokes T-shirts at festivals, but um, they're like a rare band who can be consistently, not even just consistently good. And that they, you know, like a band like Woods, for example, like their albums like are of pretty similar quality, but like Phoenix releases albums that are pretty good and have like two or three amazing fucking songs uh and they continue to do that and i think wolfgang amadeus phoenix is also a song, an album that is pretty uneven um yeah i i would say that like there I, I just wonder about like the inspiration like what is the artistic drive that leads to a phoenix song you know like you kind of mentioned the fact that they are friends, they are, they've aged really well, they don't seem to have much interpersonal conflict, making music is hard, and like, yeah, I get that. If, like, I was a guy in Phoenix, I would probably find it difficult to, like, source for my soul the, I don't know, the anguish and uh, pain that is required to make music, uh, you know, like, and I think that just kind of reflects it. Their last two albums have been enjoyable, pretty low stakes, um, you know, if this were a different week, you know, like if this were, if this album had come out on October 14th or October 7th, we'd probably not be talking about it, but you know, yeah, it are. feels like that a little bit. I mean, you know, again, I don't want to lean too negative on this because I do like Phoenix Good band. overall yeah. and it's never been like that. I'm with you. I think that's hands down their best record. Uh, otherwise I would say, uh, most Phoenix albums, you have like two or three standout songs that seem like they're the obvious standouts, and then the rest is really nice filler. You know, it's like doesn't grab you that much, but like it's also very listenable. I'll say that this uh, this new record, I think the first half is particularly strong. the The first track is the title song. It's <laughs> kind of like a wacky. Like Rihanna inspired song, it, it, it's like an R and B type thing. Maybe with like Rihanna, like yeah, it just has like I know some of the vocal affectations sound like they were a little like Rihanna inspired, and it's a little weird coming from Phoenix. But the Ezra Koenig collaboration tonight is a really great single. I think the the next three or four songs after that are quite strong. Um, but I think you're right. If they still put out greatest hits albums. Like the Phoenix greatest hits would be lights out yes. and it would easily, you know, overshadow the rest of their catalog. Um, they are a band that even if you compare them to other French bands that have been prominent in the last 25 years, they're like the craftsmen, you know, they're not the ones who are, they don't, it's like, I don't want to say this cause I don't think it's true. I know this from talking to them. I think they are perfectionists. I think they're trying to make masterpieces because they, they do spend a lot of time working on their records. But if you compare them to like M83 or Daft Punk or air, mm. I feel like all those groups have like an element of grandiosity that, uh, that Phoenix does not have No, and they've never had. And maybe that's a good thing, but it does make, them feel like a nice but maybe slightly inconsequential band yeah i mean they're consequential in the sense that like oh yeah we probably got drunk at some party to 1901 you know like aoc had that video where i think she i I can't remember whether it was 1901 or listomania but she like did a dance video in college and like that was supposed to be like this big gotcha moment uh yeah i think that's like phoenix is a band who had can be consequential in like it, like not in and of itself but it's like oh yeah 
Remember that night that we like drove around till 2 a.m. looking for a bar that was open to Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix? Yeah, it's never just like I listened to I listened to alphabetical and my life was forever changed. Now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so um, we we like the hotel year on this uh, podcast, don't we? I like them. You you yes, love them. I, yes, that is very. We 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 have reached a, a baseline level of like to love. Um, and you know the thing about them is that uh, they're probably never going to make another album again. Uh, so Sutton's got to fill the void and. This album that I'm talking about this week, Arm's Length, Never Before Seen, Never Again Found. It came out last Friday. Very young Canadian band uh, that I I think I talked about in 2021 when they released their EP. Um, And this band, it's sort of like, imagine Home Like No Place Is There, but instead of like being this traumatic, very gripping narrative about addiction and mental health, it's more like a stylish Netflix drama. And I mean that in a very positive way. This is a band that takes everything you can learn from like Tumblr era uh, emo revival slash pop punk, whether we're talking about like early Hotel Year or early Turnover or just about anything from Run for Cover. And they treat that like they're Beatles and Stones. Uh, so it's like, yeah, we're going to make a classic album. But it's like a classic album, kind of similar to Home Like No Place Is There. Very, very enjoyable, highly dramatic, highly extra uh, poppy emo uh, that not a lot of people are doing these days. Um, Yeah, it's pretty much wheelhouse, but very few bands are doing it this well. So uh, I'm very interested to see what what happens with this band as far as their ceiling going forward. Once again, Arm's Length, very young band from Canada. Never before seen, never again found. So on this show, I like to give uh, a boost, if I can, to a young up-and-coming music critic who I feel like is doing good work. And uh, my favorite music critic at the moment is uh, this kid named Bob Dylan. Uh, and He's also from Minnesota, <laughs> so I think I like him for that reason. But I've been reading his book this week. It's called The Philosophy of Modern Song. Maybe you've heard about this book. Um it's bonkers. <laughs> it's a crazy book. It's Bob. He's writing about 66 different songs from throughout music history. I think they're all from the 20th century. Um, and, you know, if you read Bob's previous book, Chronicles, uh, that came out in 2004, you know, that book was very well regarded. I think it's still looked at as like one of the best memoirs ever written uh, by a musician, even though after the fact, people realized that he was really bullshitting a lot of the time in that book (laughs) and it it seemed more normal than it actually was i think this book the uh philosophy of modern song it just wears the craziness on its sleeve uh the prose in this book i'm reluctant to quote it directly because i feel like it'd be easy to take it the wrong way when it's taken out of context and i've seen some reviews of this book that i think missed the point of this book, I think like, there was one review. I think it was in the Los Angeles Times that complained that like Bob didn't write enough about hip hop in this book, uh, or that there's not enough like you know sort of gender representation in the book. Basically, looking at it like it's a straightforward work of music criticism instead of the expressions of like just an 81 year old eccentric <laughs> who is a genius and has a great sense of humor, but is just, you know, a total oddball. And I love the book. It's everything that I hope for. There's a chapter on uh, this bluegrass song uh, by the Osborne brothers called uh, Ruby, Are You Mad? Where uh, Bob compares bluegrass to heavy metal, and he actually types the word Ingve Malmsteen at Hell one yeah. point, which is, which is unbelievable. Um, it's a great book. I would just say, even if you're not a fan of Bob Dylan, check it out from the library, open up to any page, you're going to see a sentence that makes you laugh or makes you gasp or makes you scratch your head. Uh, it, it's just totally one of a kind. I love it. I, I just love opening it up and I'm kind of looking, I'm, I'm enjoying it like a mixtape. I'm not reading it in order. I just like to go to different chapters. Each chapter is about three pages long. 
they're not connected. It's just mini essays on different songs. Uh, but it's a great read. I'm also reading the Quentin Tarantino book, Cinema Speculation, huh. where that's another instance of like a famous artist becoming a critic. And that book is also kind of bonkers in its way, but also very entertaining. Um, I feel threatened by these books because <laughs> these, these guys these guys don't need to be critics. They're already you know multimillionaires, and they're coming. They're going to eat my lunch now too. It seems a little unfair, but at the same time, they're both very entertaining books. So again, if you're a music fan, check out the Bob Dylan book, Philosophy of Modern Song. At the very least, I promise that it's way more entertaining than most music writing that you read in this day and age. But not Long Road. Um, it's not more entertaining than Long Road. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate you saying that. I think everyone was thinking it, but uh, I'm glad you said it out loud. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.